You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players and all about strategy, leveling up and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Arsenal Pass, episode 115. This week, we're going to be doing a mailbag questions from you all that have been submitted on Discord, Twitter, and YouTube, because I will actually be traveling to Scotland here on Monday. We're recording this on Saturday, 617. Uh, but yeah, a lot, a lot of good questions. I want to lead it off, Hayden, of course. I know, we, I know we did it pretty recently, but how's been your week in flesh and blood outside of that Singapore win? You've been playing any anymore, taking a little break? What's going on? Well, I didn't win Singapore, unfortunately. Top eight, though. <laughs> that counts as a win in my heart. Uh, okay, thank you. I appreciate it. Well, I, you know, Nationals is probably the next event that we've got to look forward to, apart from, of course, Dust of Dawn release. We've got these great War of the Monarch events, but Nationals, War of the Monarch, both booster draft for Monarch. So, I uh, got in a Monarch draft this week. It's the first time I've drafted Monarch in at least a year, if not close to two years, I think. So, um, really cool to revisit that format. It's a set that, I was talking with a couple of friends locally. It's a set that I didn't have fond memories of. I thought that the draft format wasn't that great. But revisiting it actually post-Outsiders and Uprising, I think my kind of thoughts on it has changed a bit. It is quite a deep format, actually, even if I do have some problems with the gameplay. Uh, it feels a little bit more bomby than some formats mm, you know, that we've yes. had recently just because of the power level of some cards, particularly power level how prism decks can turn out. The ceilings on decks can be really high, but the floors can be really low. So, look, it's, it's a really interesting format. I enjoyed my draft. I drafted, um, I got kind of put into a prism seat, drafted an okay prism deck, went 2-1. Um, and yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it. So, I'm definitely going to be doing a lot of drafting for Monarch. We'll probably do some some Monarch draft-based content. Going to look to put, I know people have been asking for, we did a Welcome to Wraith intro to sort of, 101 video for welcome to Wraith draft going to try and put something out similar for monarch in the next week and a half so that's really high on my priority list for people who are asking mm-hmm. yeah i i know we've talked about it before i'm, I'm definitely a fan of the draft format uh, i do agree on the power level disparity of some decks right you know there are mm-hmm. some offending cards like via the vanguard and like you said with some of the prism decks but ultimately i saw reaping yeah i mean that card is I, do you th- do you think that that card is better or worse than via the vanguard Hmm. I think in I think on the aggregate it's slightly it's not quite as bad I don't say worse because nothing's I think these cards are so good but um, via the Vanguard I think can just lead to the craziest decks I think in Bolton my kind of perception is that Bolton is like one of the highest ceilings in this draft format and via the Vanguard Gallantry Gold Spill Blood like these are the cards that allow you to do that so um, I think via the Vanguard like if for some reason I had a, a foil and a non-foil of these two cards in my pack. I think I'd take the via the Vanguard, but like that's something I need to reassess with like my pick orders and stuff like that. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. I also think Chain is maybe slightly less drafted in previous formats, but that might change. I mean, the people who are going to be playing Monarch Draft for like 70, 80% of people, they've never they've never drafted Monarch before. You know what I mean? So it's going to be an all new, like it is going to be an all new format, which is super interesting. So I also think back when we used to draft Chain in Monarch, the mm-hmm. concept of pitch stacking uh, with Chain was, I mean, Obviously, people knew you could do it, but it was just less popularized. The the rift bind end game wasn't really uh, a thing. I mean, that was really brought to light during constructed. So, despite you know, like I said, people knew about it back then. But I do think that coming into a monarch draft in the modern era, 
people will be playing a lot more chain. Uh, I think that was maybe a prohibitively hard hero to play uh, back in the day. So uh, I it fully, still is. yeah, yeah. I think it's still hard to play. I mean, I, I yeah. famously went three O or, you know, some people like to call it Oh three in a team draft uh, <laughs> playing chain. Um, but I do think we'll see a lot more people drafting that hero specifically, especially because people are so fond of it after these uh, few eras uh, of class constructed um, since, since yeah. our boys living legend. We're not going to see pods with two shadow heroes. I don't think, you know, like it's going to be a lot more balanced. I think people are going to take also people have learned a lot, you know, people as the sort of the aggregate of player bases just has a higher skill level when it comes to flesh and blood draft. People are going to take things they learned from the previous two formats in Uprising and I mean, even Tales of Aria, but Uprising and then into Outsiders and bring that to the approach to Monarch draft and i'm really excited to see how people approach it you know players who maybe went around when monarch was a format this is their first time drafting it but they're some of the higher level players in the world i'm excited to see how they approach it uh what are their kind of thoughts so i really hope we see it's kind of odd because we're only going to really see nationals so maybe i'm really kind of hoping we see some people you know put their thoughts out there whether it be twitter whether it be some content about how they approach this draft format because it is it is quite deep i mean you've got four heroes you've got the two talent system there's a lot of ways to stay potentially open there's a lot there's actually archetypes just you know revisiting we had sort of these mini archetypes and outsiders we didn't really have archetypes and uprising outside of the just what the heroes did monarch actually has archetypes yes. you, know, you take Olivia for instance you've got at minimum three or four archetypes in that in that hero uh, which is quite cool mm-hmm. hey do you have any news for us this week i want to start off with some non-flesh and blood news because it is a bit of a meme on the podcast uh there was there was, there was now a restaurant called Pasture. Well, Pasture actually just closed, <laughs> which is devastating because we never got to go, Hayden and I, uh, with our friend Sasha Markovic. Um, unfortunately, the the owner, uh, something happened in the family, so they decided to close the restaurant, which is honestly, it's some of the worst news I've heard in a long time. I'm, I'm, I'm devastated, Hayden. I really wanted to join you at, at Pasture. Yeah, I mean, we've all been separately. We just didn't get the chance to go together. So we'll, we'll find a new restaurant for us to all visit together. You know what's funny? I got multiple. So I'm in a group chat with Hayden and some other people. Uh, I got multiple messages on Facebook Messenger about pasture closing. And then I had friends from like college DM me about it being closed. I like woke up to this, just these, this full phone of messages about pasture closing. It's just like savage. Anyway, back to flesh and blood. <laughs> back to flesh and blood. I mean, we, we kind of covered the news this week, as Brendan said, we're recording a few days removed from the last podcast dropping. Um, I know one thing that has sort of piqued people's interest is we've seen a couple of more preview cards. So we saw some uh, light cards. I don't know if you saw these, Brendan, these mm-hmm. light warrior cards that uh, that we just saw. These kind of, they, they're really interesting to me. So if you haven't seen these, these are the Banneret cards uh, you can go to. I mean, what I use, I go to good old Fabry and uh, they have a little uh, Dust of Dawn sort of preview spoiler section. Um, these are the cards that kind of stood out to me. Yeah, these Bannerate of Courage, of Gallantry, of Protection, and then also Resilience, Salvation, uh, and Vigor. What's going to be interesting, we only saw promo versions of these cards, so mm-hmm. whether these have full cycles, but they do have this keyword, new keyword for us, which is called uh, Soul Flare, which basically when these cards are charged, they give you a perk. So some of these uh, make you know tokens, like Quicken Tokens, etc. Some of them are like Gain a Life, Gain a Resource. These are the kind of cards, Brendan, I think that Bolton has been looking for. You know, when you charge a card, you get no value off the card. So for these Banneret cards, though, when you charge them, you get value off the card, which I think is the sort of thing, you know, you go down a card mm. in Light Warrior at the moment with Bolton's charge ability, whereas with these, you're going to 
get at least some value of that card back, not just to go again off it in the future. So yeah, these cards are cool. The rate on them, whether we get a cycle of them, whether they're yellows. I mean, if they're just, if they're a full cycle, we might've seen all of the light warrior cards already, which is interesting. But yeah, it's cool that we're now seeing, you know, we haven't since Monarch, since Tales of Aria, when these heroes first released, these talented heroes, we haven't seen talented cards come out for them. These supplemental sets have stayed away from talents, right? They've just been purely the class-based cards uh, for, for the most part. And um, now this time we're going to see, you know, we're going to see talent cards. It's funny because we've seen this treatment before. We actually saw it on some Prism cards back in Everfest. Prism cards, you know, Phantasm, they break and it's supposed to be only downside, right? And we saw some um, some Illusionist cards get added with Phantasm to the card pool that actually gave you an additional upside when that card was popped as well. So now we're seeing that happen in Bolton too. I think it had, you know, it was, I don't know if it had as much of an impact on Prism because Prism was already so fundamentally powerful and got these zero cost auras, which is really sort of the motif of that set. But like you said with Bolton previously, charging a card was just net downside. I mean, you would obviously stack up the soul and use it at a later point in the game but adding this effect to to charge i think is a huge upgrade for a class that or a hero that specifically suffered from what seemed to be just a consistent card disadvantage right yeah i mean also i mean famously brendan <laughs> the best card from everfest here as i'm going with it coalescing mirage i mean that was the best sir. <laughs> yeah so yeah yeah okay so i was a little high on that card for a bit you know be let's not get into it let's not get into it it's, it's a rabbit hole it's a rabbit hole i'm just uh, having you on i'm just having you on La yeah. last thing i did want to point out though is really cool i mean lss have given this opportunity to ign which is very cool so ign actually dropped united we stand if you haven't seen this it's a light action attack cost three attacks for six defense for two it's majestic and i mean the art first of all this art is going to be like marquee art for some time mm. to come it has Bravo, Briar, Lexi, Prism, Dorinthia, Bolton, Ultim. It's the it's the I guess what might be considered the the light side or the good side of a potential battle for for the monarch. Um, so very very cool uh, in terms of what it does. It has Unity keyword. You can, you can go and check it out. I'm not going to read it all. Basically, it has Unity, and if you it gives tokens based on what you uh, which which hero uh, is in your party. So the biggest point is that pve is coming right this is a yeah. set that clearly is going to start to set up for pve we've been saying it for multiple sets now we see unity we see a keyword just that is you know really targeted towards you know it's, it's going to be seen in 1v1 play but also this keyword clearly especially with a card like united we stand pve right so yeah people are pretty hyped the video was really good as well i gotta give credit to lss over the past year it does look like their marketing initiatives have um definitely gone up right uh, i think it's actually largely due to the new hire or just rearranging of alex norville he's actually he's quite a little hustler <laughs> uh, he's, been, he's been pushing for a lot of this i know as content creators we recently received a content creator package um the one with the mat it had the tokens and the dice like i mean they, they've been upping their game which is which has been good to see good to see for sure and i saw that in the in the video in which idn displayed um which was, was pretty it's pretty badass to be honest yeah, I had voice acting. I think it was done with um, three floating, which mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, those guys have been doing some really cool sort of gameplay content and things like that. Um, and I think, yeah, I, this is interesting. The, real, the sort of the preview season for Dust to Dawn seems unlike anything we've seen before. I don't, I guess we can kind of say this, like we haven't been approached about uh, previewing a card. And from what I understand, Brennan, a lot of creators that have previously previewed cards also haven't. So whether they're doing this quite late in the piece or mm. they're going to just do this previous season completely differently which by the way i have no problem with if they're going to take a completely different approach i i'm all okay with this i think it's a great way to do something a little bit different every season you know they're 
reaching out to like 60 70% of the same people to to preview these cards if they're going to take a completely different approach I, I i'm fine for us not to get a, a preview card this season if it's going to mean a completely different way to reveal the set i think it's um it's gonna be very cool yeah I, i'm also fine with that I, receiving our first preview card was probably one of the coolest experiences i had in tcgs yeah actually when we got to open the everfest pack that was uh that, that was, was cool. that was providence? yeah uh, Crown of Providence. Well, so Crown of Providence was pretty badass, right? Because we got to, we got <laughs> to be right about a card and everybody else was wrong. Um, but with Everfest, we got to open an entire pack and you know seeing yeah. all the new cards that that felt really cool. But ultimately, I think that you know preview cards. I'm happy to. I'm super happy to show the love on that and <laughs> pass up on them for a few seasons and let them um, if they find a better strategy for it. I'm, to- I'm all for it. Anyway, Hayden, Command and Cookout section. The entire pod is a Command and Cookout section. But if you want to get your questions submitted for next week's episode you can choose a comment on youtube uh on twitter or go to the arsenal pass discord and there is a channel specifically for that all right hayden i'm gonna go ahead and steal this and i'm gonna ask the first question and my question is what do you think pve is going to be there's been a lot of iterations of pve in card games in the past um how do you think fab will ultimately uh structure its pve Great question. I mean, the simple answer is I have no free clue. <laughs> I think the more complex answer is I think they they have to make it feel natural with how Flesh and Blood plays. So if you're a player who enjoys playing Flesh and Blood, whether it be casually, whether it be semi-competitively, maybe even competitively, it needs to feel natural to walk into a game of PvE and feel like you can probably almost transition the class and the hero that you play with a few tweaks here and there to be able to play pve versus being able to go down to your local armory and just play cc or blitz for instance right i think that's the first kind of challenge for lss um in terms of what the 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 campaigns the game itself looks like i mean you have seen it done like you say in so many different ways i think one of the ways that i've really enjoyed is where you've seen ccgs do it so um you know or sorry or lcgs you know living card games Mm -hmm. rather um so things like arkham horror you know the the lcg uh things like the lord of the rings lcg as well i think these are really interesting ways to do it where you know you kind of play through these these campaigns you have these packs that come out that effectively give you the campaigns to play through as a group i think that's probably as opposed to maybe the more board gamey route we've seen previously where it's like you just have certain scenarios and you can buy expansion packs and stuff i think that probably won't fit quite the mold that lss want to go after it just doesn't really fit i think what a tcg is and what pv and a tcg could look like so look this is gonna be really unique we haven't seen a true competitive tcg really do pv before we've seen multiplayer obviously but mm-hmm. yeah so i think it's going to be either way it's going to be groundbreaking it's going to be sort of potentially industry defining how they go about this yeah when i think about pve in a game like flesh and blood i, I probably think about wow tcg first um and okay, the way yeah. the way they did raids uh and things like that i guess you know it, it is a pretty tough question right because <laughs> we have we have no clue i don't know if you were ever able to play uh the car game or whatever it was that they had back at like the early yes the early callings um but ultimately do you think that pve will be a fun and fulfilling experience or do you think it will have do you think you'll get the sentiment that it was more developed as an afterthought as a response to sort of community um community desire and maybe not not be as flushed out what do you what do you think the the final product is gonna uh is gonna resemble I think if it did look like that, like if it was an afterthought, if it's something that was just purely driven by demand, it'd, it'd already be out. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like they would have already just released it and said, here, have this. This is a half-baked kind of 
thing, but that's not, that's clearly not what they're doing. They've taken, they've frustrated people with the time it's taken <laughs> to release this product because they want to get it right. They want to make sure that the card base is there. They want to make sure that, you know, the pool's available. They have the right product, I think. We might not even get PVE with a set, right? That is the other thing True. worth considering. You know, we're seeing Unity cards. This could just be yet another set that's setting us up for PVE. Maybe we get a standalone PVE product, which introduces this in a sort of lull period. But I think the main thing, PVE needs to tie into lore. This game has the potential to have really strong lore. We've seen it in patches, I would say. It's not been a consistent thing. Uh, but I think if you're playing PvE, my kind of understanding from talking to a lot of people and understanding about what PvE looks like to them or could look like to them is these people are quite invested in what the lore could look like. You know, they're really attached to heroes. They're really attached to the kind of the background of the game. These are the people, I think, that are, are sitting there and they're deciphering the codes on the art of cards to work out what, you know, the, the glyphs say, for, for instance. I think PvE has to be really lore-based because it has to bring you into this world of of effectively you know playing this kind of this campaign out playing what it feels like with friends you mm-hmm. know D D esque like rpg-esque yes. i think that is one of the strengths that a hero-based tcg has and what analysis have developed so they have to translate that into what pve could look like in an even stronger way than what we've seen with 1v1 one of the most important things to me when it comes to uh pve in a card game like this is that it's actually difficult um there's a game called regicide that was created by our friend luke badger and that game is that game is legitimately difficult to play you'll see people playing it on the sides on the side of uh at at tables at tournaments i saw people playing at the pro tour it's it's a it's a fun little side game to bring to uh to a major event um but that game is really tough and people need to know what they're doing and you have to collaborate and it's you know you have this replayability through the difficulty um and i hope that flesh and blood is able to deliver an experience like that something that has replayability because um it is hard, right? Because the the issue with PVE and especially with cooperative PVE is that you know you, you run into this scenario where sometimes the path of least resistance or the path of success is that the the best player becomes the sort of omnipotent player of all hands, right? And sort of dictates what yeah. all the players are doing. And it's important to find a way through game design to sort of mitigate that. Sometimes it's done through time, just some, or sometimes it's done through the inherent setup of it. Like with Regicide, right? We're all kind of looking at this somewhat hidden information. Um, so for me, that's that's the most important part. Like I want to be able to take this to a pro tour, um, sit down with players that are at you know that level of event, and you know maybe have a 15, 20 minute game where we go and try to conquer some sort of boss or something like that. That could be fun. Anyway, yeah, on board. Yeah. <laughs> on to our first question here. So this is this comes from YouTube. This is from Justin uh, Talby, 4255. And they say, I've got a question for the command and cookout. For the intermediate one to two year player, maybe they've top eight at a road to national. Maybe they go positive at armies, but haven't been able to hit the next level. What are some of the biggest things that player should be looking at, uh, looking at in terms of their gameplay? It's me, by the way. I'm the intermediate player. <laughs> I'll you take this one, Hayden. Well, great question, Justin. I think it's, first of all, it's a really big question. I think, you know, what are the, it's really hard. I think this, first of all, I think this might frustrate people, but, it, and Justin even, and maybe as well, it can be super contextual mm-hmm. on your play. Like, and I think it's really hard for me to nail things down without watching you play a game, for instance. But I think some of the things that I see repeatedly, you know, my experience with, playing people at Road to Nationals, players that are maybe just on the cusp, you know, they're, they're maybe just getting to the top eight, they're not quite getting to the top four, or, you know, they're, they're maybe just getting to the, the, the player that Justin's explaining, basically, is intermediate player. I think some of the continual sort of downfalls I see and things that people need to look at and prove on in their gameplay, one of them is definitely 
understanding their role in a game. So in any given matchup with the deck they're playing, what what is their role? And we've talked about this a lot, but it's like, how do you win games? I consistently see people maybe have a vague idea of this, but realistically, they don't nail down exactly how they're going to win a game. And so when they get into the mid to late game, they make decisions that aren't in their best interest. They make decisions that on the face of it might be value orientated because maybe they're at an intermediate level and they've understood how to understand or extrapolate value from any given turn cycle, but they might not progress towards how they win a game. And I can give like an example of this, right? You're playing into, uh, let's say you're traditionally, you know, you just played against Ultim, right? Ultim's been so dominant in this format. You're playing Lexi against Ultim. And you know that, you know, the way you win this game is to not get fatigued, but you get into the end game and you kind of forget about this. And you, you, you spy an opportunity to deal some damage. And in the mid game, you like pop your Snapdragon scalers for an extra like two to three damage. You know, in the end game, could that Snapdragon scale has been worth like six, seven damage, for instance. Mm. And I think those are the sorts of things that I see people make mistakes about because they misunderstand the point in the game they're at. They misunderstand the way they're going to win the game. Um, and that ultimately leads to quite a lot of losses, I think, that people can't identify. It's really hard to identify those. So, but I think the way that you fix those issues and then you start to identify those is you think about the way you're going to win the game. You try and understand the context of a matchup. And it's, it's a really big task. It's not an easy thing to do, uh, I think. and you know, in terms of how do you how do you go about this and how do you get better at this? Like, what are the kind of practical ways? There's no one solution, but I think if you keep in your mind and you talk to your friends, you talk to the players, you talk to people you play games against, you, you talk in armories, you talk in road to nationals with players who are better than you after the game and you try and sit down and identify with them, hey, where do you think I lost that game? Where do you think the point is where I went wrong in that game? And you're going to get some feedback. Like, people will be able to tell you. Like, I use that specific example because I saw that multiple times in road to nationals and I was able to tell people that, you know, if they asked me that question, hey, where do you think I lost that game? Well, I think one of the big things is you did this on this turn or, you know, there was a turn where you decided to throw a rain raises even though you knew you were in the be able to play two arrows in that turn for instance so these sorts of things i mean there's so many more brendan but mm-hmm. I, th- I think that one is particularly big and i saw it a lot during this road to national season yeah i i think i have a pretty straightforward answer to this um and i'm quite confident in it and i believe the biggest difference or the biggest limiter to intermediate players and what's stopping them from becoming high level or expert players is the people that they surround themselves with. I think that if you surround yourself with the right group of players, any any player can become high level can become a high level player can become a pro to a competitor can become a world's competitor even threaten top eight look at someone like zach bunn pretty average now <laughs> but even zach bunn can can top eight a calling when he surrounds himself with the, something like the wolf pack like i know f- from my personal experience being able to test with people like hayden and sasha consistently allowed me to get better at the game it's such a faster rate than I would have if I was alone or if I'd siloed myself. And it's the greatest contributor to any success that I had. And I genuinely believe that through mentorship and through surrounding yourself with players that are better than you, or at least willing to engage with you and learn is how you become a great player of flesh and blood. I think 99.9% of players fall under this sort of category of having done that or are currently doing that, where there is maybe a gross 0.001% 0.001% outlier that have you know maybe been the one player that can do it on their own. Uh, I genuinely believe it's it's the people you surround yourself with. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, it's it's all about the learnings and and advancing, right? And it's like learning any any skill in life. You know, some of the best ways to learn is to to get feedback and to understand exactly what the areas you can work on are and you can't see your mistakes often, but other people can. And that's why I think our two points actually tie really closely together. Yeah. You know. I think you talked about specifically, you said about surrounding yourself with those players. I mean, it's not always practical to do that, right? Maybe you 
you don't have you haven't been able to find a testing group that benefits you but something you can do is when you go to these events you know it's experience like when you go to callings like get yourself to callings and then you play against someone that you you think is better than you for whatever reason you know maybe you felt like you got outplayed maybe you know the player they're a top player just ask them ask them these questions have a couple of questions like try and learn from them if you're going to go to a calling level event for instance for the experience like make sure you get the experience out of it and one of the best ways to do that is you know, asking questions, finding out, trying to get feedback to, to kind of Brennan's point. And mm-hmm. um, then I think beyond that, if you can surround yourself, maybe you've got a player in your, maybe you've got like this, you know, bitter rival, someone that you're always fighting for the three-hour armories with. Why not try and learn together? You know, maybe they're also clearly a very good player. They're at the same sort of similar level as you. Why not try and bounce ideas off that person and, and try and improve each other together? So, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of ways you can do it, I think. Yeah, I genuinely believe it's it's rising tides. People get better together. All right, the next one is from Jake the Rake 3. Uh, they say, Hayden, I'd love to hear more about what contributes to your 7 uh, to 9.5 confidence levels. This is regards in regards to the Calling Singapore. I'm newer to FAB, and while I understand sports preparing physically and mentally, FAB has a degree of luck versus skill, matchup selection, etc. that seems hard to prepare for. What do you do that gives you such an advantage at every event? It's impressive. Thanks, Jake. Um, and just just to point out there, I have not cashed every event. There's definitely been events where I've had uh, poor results. Like there was a a run. Brendan knows this. We've we talked about it a lot afterwards about how to try and avoid the situation. But I went from Singapore last year to Lille to my national championships, and I felt like underperformed. Um, you know, we I think we all made day two at Lille, Brendan. But you know, I don't think any of us cashed in the end at Lille, uh, Singapore. I didn't cash, and then my nationals ended up like bubbling out of, of top eight. I felt like this run was not, you know. Yeah. So there's there's a lot to learn from that, which I, I can definitely talk about. Do you but remember the answer think, too? That's do you remember the specific answer that we discussed to uh, what we what we attributed a lot of the the inconsistency to? So there's a couple of things to that one, like to those kind to that kind of bad run. One was like the preparation wasn't it mm-hmm. wasn't the right preparation for me i felt you know um landed on a deck late didn't understand matchups you know things that jake just talked about preparation wasn't there really i think um even to a degree like mentally i didn't feel in the best position because i didn't feel prepared that kind of led into one or the other and then the other was i think choosing to play a style of deck that i felt didn't give me the agency that i wanted whether it's perceived or or realized agency that i felt like i needed to to compete and um leverage what i see as my skills so uh, in terms of this like question Jake asked, so the the kind of context to this for people who maybe have missed some of the pods or didn't hear because they're quite small questions that Brendan asked me. A couple of weeks ago before Singapore, Brendan asked like, what was my confidence level? And I was like, ah, maybe it's like a seven. And then we got off the call and I said to him, I was like, actually, maybe it's like an eight. I think it might be an eight. And then the week of, uh, I was thinking it was like a 9.5. And I guess the, the reason for this was just the preparation, especially in the last two weeks, was I think really strong. I got the ability to do something that Jake talks about, which is, you know, matchup selection is like a, is quite a hard thing. I got to play against a lot of the different matchups that I was worried about. I felt like I solved all of the matchups I was worried about in terms of my plans. I felt really confident. And then this idea that Jake says is like, you know, Fab has a degree of luck versus skill. And that, that is definitely true. You know, your the matchups, you, what do you call it, Brennan? You call it uh, the, the gym, the gym sort of pairings. You know, format. what are your gym yeah. pairings? Yeah, the gym format. Like that is definitely true. But one way that you can mitigate that is give yourself the, most amount of positive matchups by choosing the right deck right and having the right plans so going to singapore it was like i didn't really want to dodge anything that wasn't kano and control dash and i was like how much of that is the field going to be maximum 10 percent. so you know i'm giving myself like a 90 percent first of all pairing rate that i want to see or that i'm okay with seeing that's a good start 
more than that, probably like a 40 to 50% of the field that I actively wanted to see. I wanted to play into Lexi's. I wanted to play into mirror matches. Those are the matchups I want to play all day, every day. Azuri's, I wanted to play those three matchups all day, every day. Even Dromai, I was like, give me those matchups. So I think that is part of why my 9.5 was there. And then I guess this kind of, again, idea of like luck versus skill, you can, to a degree, I think, eliminate a lot of the luck by the deck you choose. So I chose a deck that has like a really low variance, for instance, Mm -hmm. and also that deck's in a really good position. In previous formats, I've definitely chosen decks that have higher degrees of variance, but have a higher ceiling, higher level of power. Um, You know, Kano at Worlds, for instance, I think is that to a degree. But still, the big confidence value for me going into Worlds, for instance, was preparation. So I think... It's a it's a hard one to answer succinctly because it's it's a, a tough question when it comes to consistency. Like how do you extrapolate consistency? But I think for me, I found a formula that works, which is find understand the meta, what I think the meta is gonna be in any given event. Find the deck that I think is probably gonna be best positioned for that, just based on the power level of what it is and also its matchup spread. And then learn it. Learn every matchup, solve matchups, find creative slightly creative things that could attack a matchup in a different way than people are expecting and just understand it inside and out and um and bring that deck to the to the event yeah so what i can contribute to this is over our years of playing because we did play together four years was um a lot. we would consistently <laughs> go back to is like uh we we were refining our process the entire time so every failure we had whether it was a legitimate failure or sort of a micro failure we would tend to revisit the process and try to figure out what we had done wrong there i mean because the 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 key thing, sorry for the stuttering, is to not be too results-oriented, right? Because sometimes you do get unlucky. Sometimes things don't go your way. But it's to look back at your preparation and the way you approached approach the event and try to tweak that process for the future, right? So at Lille specifically, one thing we honed in on is like, we just didn't play enough games, right? I pretty much everybody sitting at that table prior to the event was like, okay, I think this deck might be a good deck for the tournament. I think that we've landed on a decent list, even though it's very last minute, but none of us felt comfortable in the deck. None of us had enough reps. And we we don't really attribute that to a failure on the day, but we look back at the process, the testing process, and we're like, we need to lock in this deck earlier because we need to get reps on it. We need to be playing the deck. We need to be comfortable with the deck. We need to have game plans into this stuff because that's that's almost equally, if not more important than having the correct deck list is having the correct game plans. So revisiting that process, we appoint some, you know, we might move to appointing someone to take more of a leadership role in the testing group overall, Get so we have clear direction around Right? Because sometimes we would fall into this area where, you know, people, maybe they weren't testing. They were just kind of playing games to play games. And we want to avoid those scenarios and try to make a better use of our time. So it's all about revisiting that process. How can we hone it in? And what are we going to change for the future? And ultimately, I think that a lot of success in FAB is focusing on the process and not the results. But we do use the results as a way to to try to litmus test our process. So, you know, is it working? Yeah. Is it not? Um, yeah. There's a lot of that, I think, in, in particular in Limited in this game as well. I think people see Limited as... I want to share a bit of an anecdote as well about luck in a second, but I think people see luck as such a big part of Limited. And my kind of counter to that as well, if I'm super prepared for the Limited format, I understand how to play all the archetypes. I understand what I want my decks to look like. I understand where my pick orders are. I'm going to drive that myself mm-hmm. and eliminate a lot of that sort of luck element the kind of variance element because i'm going to know what i want these decks to look like i'm going to know how i want to navigate drafts and i'm going to set myself up in the best way possible to be super confident going into my games and get every single possible bit of edge i can in my games i'm just going to win a lot more than than others are and i think that was my biggest learning on limited i think it's why i went 6-0 at worlds for instance in limited i think it's why i went 5-0 in, in nationals i think it's what has kind of 
helped contribute to those things. Mm-hmm. All right. Next um, Go ahead. I want to I want to just make real quick on, on luck because I think people talk a lot about would you, would you agree people talk a lot about luck and variance in flesh and blood? Yeah, and it's it's a funny conversation because <laughs> flesh and blood is probably the TCG where that that is the least Im- well the factor is uh, weighted the least. Slower. But yeah, I mean it's it's a clear it's a clear and obvious uh, and cop out and the the fastest way to make sure you never grow from anything <laughs> is mm-hmm. to blame things on luck. Go ahead, Aiden. I want to, I want to, yeah, I want to share like a mind shift, uh, a mindset shift that I'd love mind, people to make mind in this game. Shit. <laughs> mind, mind shift. <laughs> it's a new card coming in the next set. Yeah. I think if you want to make a really positive mindset shift in flesh and blood to help you get better at this game, Brendan, do you know, do you know who Darren Brown is, Brendan? Have I you heard Darren actually. Brown before. Okay, Darren Brown is like a, is a, I guess a magician, like a mentalist, a, a tricks of the mind kind of person. And he does this amazing like um, special. He does like a lot of TV shows in, in the UK and stuff. And like 10 years ago, he did this amazing special, which was called like, um, I think it's called The Secret of Luck, basically. And he finds these people who basically think they're like the unluckiest people. They're like, I'm super unlucky. I'm so unlucky. I have the worst luck, right? And they get a camera crew to follow these people. And in particular, I think there's this guy named like Wayne the Butcher. I don't know. He's... he's Sounds like he's a murderer. He's a, literally a butcher. And his name's Wayne. He's like, I'm super unlucky. I'm so unlucky. And they follow him around with a, a crew, right? And they put all these things in his way. Like they put a hundred pound note, hundred dollar note on the on the ground. They uh, they put up this big sign that says like, you know, get this free or something. Or like, Wayne, do this and you'll get this or something. Like these are massive, like they, it gets less and less subtle, subtle as you go along uh, through like the kind of week as they follow him. They give all these chances for him to basically have lucky encounters, right? And he takes none of them. He gets none of them, basically. I think maximum one. He doesn't see the pound note or he doesn't pick it up. He doesn't even look at the sign. He doesn't even like go into this little store that is offering like this free whatever. He just takes none of it. And I think the the kind of thing I learned from that, watching that, was that you do to an a, a aspect or to a certain degree create your own luck and it's about taking opportunities and i think if you in the game of flesh and blood just consider yourself super unlucky you think i got unlucky in this and you never kind of learn from the games and you just walk away and go i got unlucky this happened you focus on the things that you know maybe didn't happen or i missed this out or i missed this as opposed to the things that did happen you know this did happen my opponent did this i didn't do this in this aspect of the game i just think people just don't don't get better and i think variance is quite low in flesh and blood and if you try and not focus on variance and you focus on the actual things you can impact you'll get infinitely better at this game quickly mm. yeah the number one crossover um sort of skill or ideology i learned from flesh and blood and applied to my life is uh, learn how to play to your outs and that is that's exactly the, the fundamental of that is you know you do make your own luck and in a mitigation of what people would consider considered to be unlucky is you're you're always sort of priced in right and you're always just playing to your outs all right next question spoken is spoken like a true kind of <laughs> yeah i know kano kano changes the way you view life everybody from uh hakai here and they say i would like to hear your you guys's thoughts on players conceding in the finals of small tier events like road to nationals for manipulation of living legend points and prizing do you think that these should be played out in their entirety i don't believe we've seen any uh seen any of this at higher level events like callings and battle hardens, at least not that I'm aware of. So I picked out this question because I really like the addendum, which is I don't think we've seen this at higher level events like callings and battle hardens. Well, I can assure you this happens at callings and battle hardens. Maybe not concessions, right? Um, it's definitely happened at a battle hard. Uh, me and like specifically me, me and Yuanji uh, conceded the PTI event at Dallas because uh, we just 
tossed it up because there's no reason to play it at that point. But I know callings, this has happened like grossly. Um, in the past, it doesn't really happen anymore. I do actually believe at a calling, um, you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> I think that you actually do have to play out the match. You can't just concede or, or chop it. Um, but Hayden, do you think that this should be mitigated in any way? It's something like a road to national because manipulation. I think ultimately it's pretty harmless and players are just going to do it regardless, right? It's pretty hard to police. Um, and if you did police it, you would just end up in this scenario where players were effectively conceding, but they did, you know, for show they played it out. Uh, it's such a tough question. I yeah. think that because it's, I, there's a lot of context to all of these different examples that people have of these things happening in events and people have different thresholds of where they think integrity is kept and not kept. I think the, the biggest thing is that integrity of the game is really important. And the i guess we don't you know we don't want people bribing people we don't want people doing favors you know basically to, to throw games like that's never something you want a competitive card game the best way you know as is often said before the end of the last round the best way to determine a game of flesh and blood is to play a game of flesh and blood and and it is the correct way to do it i think i let's listen to two things first of all the manipulation of living legend points i think this has been kind of grossly overstated in terms of how much this happened with the briar piece because on the flip side it was also the other way around people yeah. were putting out bounties and they were like people were trying to get briar to win and all this stuff so it was happening on both sides and at a road to national sort of level i mean at any level i think it's not great because there are you know players are there to win their invites to nationals people are there to to, to play and for while well, for some person in the final you know a road to nationals final might mean very little for other people it's going to mean a lot and I think it's integrity of the game is really important. So I think we need to be really careful about those things. And I think judges are aware. And I think there's some communications, as I understand, between judges and the judge program and sort of LSS and rules and policy to make sure that, you know, integrity is kept, whatever that looks like. Prizing. Um, mm. I think that's tough as well, because the way that prizing is done, especially at these kind of tier two events, you know, Battle Hardens, Road to Nationals, ProQuest, for instance, is that you're incentivized as a player who's already qualified or is going to qualify to, to often play because you're going to get the experience of playing. You're going to get the potential uh, ELO if that matters to you, but also there's, there's prizes, right? And they're, they are really top heavy, these these foils and gold foils, et cetera. So I think that really incentivizes people to, to play. Now, a lot of the time that means that the only thing they care about, for instance, is the gold foil. They don't care about the invite. Whereas another person playing on the flip side could only care about the invite and not the gold foil because they haven't got their invite yet. So, what does that mean? Well, it's in the best interest of both those players to get the things they want, right? And that's mm. where prize splits starts to happen yeah. and things like that, which I think prize splits are okay. My view is that they're okay, but they need to be done within the rules of the game. Mm. And I think maybe that's not made clear at events what you can and cannot do. And I've definitely heard some less than desirable things. Ultimately, I think there's got to be some give and take, some leeway to this, but I think and a bit of education on what price splitting is versus uh, what bribing is would be really helpful for players. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm not a fan of price splitting. I've done in the past. I've only done it with friends. I've been asked many times and it's snap no. One of the things that mm -hmm. I dislike the most, and it happens pretty consistently at um, very high tier events, so even pro tours and worlds, is the top eight will actually look to split prior to playing. And I think that it just sucks. I know that on some of those yeah. events, I've been on the commentary side, so I don't have skin in the game there. But I think that taking stakes out of like 
it's what makes the experience rewarding is I think playing for the reward and having some level of risk. I understand that people, a lot of times, you know, they are kind of waging their livelihood. Yeah. They're, they're, and they're also waging a bit of livelihood on this. Maybe they can't actually afford to get out there or, you know, eating the opportunity cost of the tournament or not cashing out enough is actually detrimental to their life. But I, I know that, you know, as a fan of the game, right. I hate it when I hear that. When I hear the top eight is trying to split and they're waiting on one player to agree to it, it just it it just doesn't feel good, and I don't like it. And I, you know, you know who I know hates it more than anybody is James White. James White. James, <laughs> I if know you he does. want to get on James White's bad side, try to split a high level event. He will. <laughs> it's a uh, he doesn't like it at all, and I understand because it it, it does kind of ruin ruin the game. Um, yeah. On to, no, I I I, I just I I just want to say I I think you're right. I think I kind of downplayed the price spreading a little bit i think especially at high level events it's i i i guess if it's not correct at high level events then it's not correct at any level event and ultimately what i think probably needs to happen to make sure that you know people who the invites go to the right people i think maybe the system in terms of pass downs for ProQuest and road to nationals and things like that road to nationals i think works because you have the xp system that mm-hmm. you know if, if people eat up road to nationals invites in top fours then that just means more people get in on xp so ultimately you're not eating up invites whereas the ProQuest season you know two players in the final of a ProQuest both already have their invites you've eaten up an invite right and that can be kind of detrimental to local growth you know, within your local community. And I don't think it should fall on players to be like, well, you shouldn't play so you don't eat up with, uh, an invite. If there's incentive to play, those players are incentivized to play. Players are, you know, there's grinders out there. So maybe the system needs to change a little bit in that regard, but yeah. Yeah, I uh, I live in a region where there is, uh, you know, locally there's one player that is very dominant at some of these uh, <laughs> these regional events. And I mean, there are lo- there are people locally that are, that are very unhappy about it. Those players that do end up on the cusp of, you know, in top eight, but can never get their invite. And they, they are legitimately angry about it. And I think it's fucking stupid. (laughs) It's like, dude, I mean, if, if, if another player is winning, I I just think that they deserve to win. Um, anyway, on to the next one is from the Teclo Foundry or Marco. Uh, they say, would fab benefit from IP crossovers? The strength of the game is the core system that has tangible experience of you being the hero, the attack slash box system, the equipment, the class player status, the class and playstyles offer an, imme- an immersive experience unlike any other TCGs. Seeing the system brought to other IPs sounds like a fun time that would benefit LSS. Playing the one ring isn't as flavorful as equipping it to your character. Hayden. I think ben- if, would Fab benefit from IP crossovers? I think short term, yeah, it definitely would, right? Like it would, it would bring players to the game. It, like you couldn't say that it wouldn't be a short term benefit. Would it be a long-term benefit? That's a much harder question to say. I think, you know, you look at what's your magic they've done in recent years. They've done yeah. D&D. They've Transformers. Done Transformers. <laughs> they're doing Lord of the Rings now. Yeah. For me personally, that's actually a turn off to the game. I, I don't enjoy that about magic. I don't think that's an interesting thing. So from a personal standpoint, you know, and I'm, I'm going to put my personal stamp on this to a degree, I don't find it interesting. I think it's a bit of, it, it, to me, it looks bad. Like it just looks like a, a bit of a cash grab to me, which, yeah. you know, turns me off the game. I would hate for that to happen with, with Fab. I think, yes, it could be a benefit to Fab if it was done the right way. Would I want to see it? Not right now and not anytime soon. So, Yeah, it's funny because I'm a little bit of a hypocrite on this one. Um, I also think that overall I have a negative outlook on it, but Magic has dropped some sets and they have done some IP crossovers like when they did the, the Warhammer 40K and I was like, oh, that might be interesting. <laughs> I just like – I just I, – I, 
there's some IPs that have the pull. I think it's because some of them are just so atrociously bad. Like, I'm sorry, I'm just not a fan of Transformers. I see Transformers on a Magic card. I'm like, this is so dumb. Transformers also the had Walking its own did. TCG. Yeah, The Walking. I mean, those were the first, right? That, that was like, yeah, that and was, they were egregious because um, they also looked kind of terrible. Um, I don't know if it's the right move for Fab. Maybe, you know, maybe it's it's relative to being competitive with the other TCGs. But I think that Fab focusing on its own IP and building its own world um, will pay dividends in the long run rather than having this sort of, I don't know, all these kind of wacky competing motifs in the game, whether it's another IP or etc. So uh, ultimately, ultimately, probably, probably not on that one. All right. Hayden, another one from the Techo Foundry. <laughs> Should LL points be distributed to heroes and top eight rather than only to first? The recent change to the LL system mentioned ideal lifespans, ideally 15 to 20 months from release for a high performing hero in class constructed. But what is a high performing hero? Is it winner takes all approach to the rotation our best option? We've talked so much about the LL system and it's funny. I, I was speaking to James in Singapore oh, yeah. and I said to him, I was like, you know, he was talking about, we were discussing, actually, we were both talking about pace of heroes living legend of kind of rotation of this next when i say rotation i mean heroes living legend sorry this next set coming out and the impacts and changes to formats and i said to james i said look james i don't i don't actually james had said to me he said i i have listened to quite a bit of your content i've heard the things you've had to say and i said ah interestingly <laughs> i said well i don't know if you heard that but me and brendan have touched on living legend quite a few times and we've been pretty reasonably sized critics of the living legend system and i did say to james i think this current iteration of living legend does work a lot better i will be honest and I, that is how i feel like i was being honest with james i think this current iteration of living legend is working a lot better i know people are sitting there going briar 998 like you know this is an example of how the living legend systems failed i completely disagree i think it's completely opposite that's an example of how living legend system is working correctly i think it's showing that you know 998 is such an like it's a bit of an arbitrary number it could have been 950 right it could have been it could have gone over to 10,020 like yeah it's interesting it's fun to talk about like oh is it going to hit is it not going to hit but ultimately I think it living through to another season just shows that it it hasn't been a dominant hero this past season it's been pretty poor in terms of what it's done now I think James made a really good point to me he was like I'm really interested to see Vincent with Rosetta Thorn and without Rosetta Thorn. And Same. I was like, wow, that is Same. that is quite interesting. And and that is the thing is that Alice's are not in full control of exactly what every format looks like because of Living Legend. And I think that's kind of cool, to be honest. And it gives you the opportunity to, they can still balance the game, like they've said always, we will balance the game with the banned suspended list. Mm -hmm. And I think that's exactly what they're going to do. Living Legend is can be a part of that but it really is for heroes that dominate to move through and for the the game to get refreshes we've talked about how important or how impactful living legend has been in any given format often it's more impactful than the set that comes out so to be honest i mean you know i know marco said here about ideally 15 to 20 months from release high performing heroes what is a high performing hero i think a high performing hero is is a hero that 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 does well i guess the crit the critique of this is we live with Oldham for so long because yeah. it didn't win events well, it wasn't top eight but it didn't win events i think the critique is that living legend is is ambiguous and it is um i do think it is amb sure. an ambiguous system and i i don't think that that that's 
I think that the a lot of the issues with Living Legend is people approach it and they they look at it from the critique of expecting it to be an exact science, and it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, my biggest critique of Living Legend is that it's not based off dynamic values, so that if the player base expands or contracts drastically, the system fundamentally breaks, or if you know if uh, events drastically increase or decrease, it doesn't really take in the, those uh, those situations into account. And I think that ultimately, assuming we have linear growth with this game. The system will just have to be changed again, which is fine. If we just move the goalposts a little bit, that's fine. Um, I think ultimately Living Legend has has led, so far since its most recent iteration, has led to better um, better iterations of Class Constructed than we've seen through things like Banner Restricted or re- releases of new sets. So Yeah, I, I think just lastly answering Marco's question, I mean, we talked a lot about just Living Legend in general mm-hmm. and a few stories there, but should points be given out to top eight? Maybe, but mm-hmm. I think the Living Legend system has to, go through another change you know like you say thresholds have to increase um the amount you give to a top eight has to be super relevant right like a win versus top eight what's the value of you know making quarterfinals versus a final is it 5x is it 10x so i honestly think that starts to become quite complicated also if you start to give points out to top eight now you're not talking about domination and and sort of what what um uh what's the the word you use like a a high performing hero now you're just looking at heroes that are represented highly do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. because that often, you know, play to top eight conversion is a lot more reflective than play to win conversion. So, yeah, is that right? I don't think so. I think that there's been some situations where top eights have been um, highly represent, highly representative of a singular hero, but then won by a somewhat less represented hero. And people are like, oh, I mean, does this hero really deserve the living legend points? I mean, that's just how the system works at this point. Yeah, I mean, but also at one. That's yeah. more relevant than top eight, I think. A win is more relevant than a top eight. Agreed. Because it takes consistency to get to a living legend anyway. So I think winning is the pinnacle of that. Mm-hmm. Whether top eight is correct, maybe, but what I'm saying is winning is definitely correct. Just take me back to the system where we had the one out of 10, irrespective no. of format, and then you got your name no. with a little blurb on the website. <laughs> that was Those were the days. All right, Hayden, this one comes from Thomas... Um, Thomas WBG, uh, they say, with Monarch Draft returning, which card do you think was the most undervalued during the release season? Well, let's actually, let's take the, let's take this oh. question in a different direction. Which card do you think is the most undervalued just in Monarch Draft? Yeah, I mean, I, that's how I was taking the question anyway, I mm-hmm. think. Um, oh, that is, that is a great question. The card that's most undervalued. I mean, there's a card that I was talking to... Um, you know, as to Nick, actually, we were at a draft on Thursday, uh, recent guest in the pod. And one of the cards that we talked about was, you know, Half of Beyond. That card is really powerful. And yeah. I think the perception is that card is not actually that powerful, but it's a rare the card. I've seen some, some dirty stuff happen with that card. I think that card could be in the consideration. Or honestly, it, it might just be like uh, a generic common in the form mm. of something like we know everyone knows how good the poppers are right everyone talks about oh, you know poppers are really strong you need them because of how strong prism is in the format but then there's also you know like the yellow versions of those cards are also a lot better than people give them credit for like yellow pound for pound is a win condition in this game mm-hmm. um yellow stony wootenhog can be a, a two card for six yellow surging militia is also yeah. really strong yellow zealous belting so i think some of the i would say the yellows of cards in generic particular are really underrated i think in, in monarch yeah, for me, um, I'll save the name of this card, and he's going to be like, that's not underrated. But I think on aggregate, it is still underrated, and that's Surging Militia. I just think Surging Militia is one of the best cards in, in Monarch fair. Draft, and like it's so hard to deal with. It, it attacks from multiple angles. Um, just 
I think heading into the modern era of what will be uh, Monarch Draft, people are going to be prioritizing that card h- higher than they did in the past to answer sort of the original question mm-hmm. there, which was the most undervalued during release. Um, I think you're right. Yeah. I'll agree with you. Let me, I'm just looking here. Oh, this is from OB Woodland. Jay, sorry. It was a hard, a hard name to read. Question for the next pod. Is LSS scared to make strong heroes? It seems like ever since Starville, LSS hasn't made heroes to the same power level as Chain, Prism, Briar, etc. Is it just them getting better at balancing and designing heroes? Or are they just too timid or worried about having another Starville situation? This is a really, this is a really, really good question. The trade-off of power and what some people perceived or what some people would probably label as fun. Um you know, the heroes are a bit more balanced nowadays. You're doing less busted stuff, right? Now you're drawing your entire deck. You are like a chain. You're not locking people out of the board like you were with Prism. And you're not winning the game in deck building and have that and not playing the game at all like you were a starve over, you know, some people might say. What do you think, Aiden? It's uh, a great question because I, I think it's all relative. Yeah. You know, like had, had more powerful heroes been printed than, you know, the question be on the flip side. But, you know, they haven't. I think people always have complaints about certain heroes and formats you know it's i think at the time people when Fi got printed people were like ah oh, Fi, this is you know this is just another hero where lss have missed the mark the power level's too high but i think looking back people aren't saying that now right people aren't with the briar errata even after the errata people were like briar's too strong where do people sit on that now it's always relative to the format i think and saying that starvo and chain prism i agree the play experience the power level of the card pool plus the hero etc very very high um, I don't think they're scared to make the heroes at their power level. Mm-hmm. I think they actively don't want to. But mm-hmm. the other thing as well was that, and James explained this as well when I was speaking to him, and I've heard him explain it on different things. Is in Brennan, you spoke about it as well. He said that Baltimore is this ebb and kind yes, of. Yes, I was going to ask. I was going to say, yeah. what about what James has been saying? Because he's talking about this. He's like, there are there are peaks and valleys, and he kind of alluded that we were in a valley. So does that mean we're Coming back to a peak in terms of doing busted stuff. Potentially, to what level it is. I mean, I think this, and I can speak, again, this is speculation, but I'm like super, super confident that this is the case, is that LSS looked at Monarch and Tales of Ari and went too powerful. Mm. The, like the, we've, the power level we've gotten to and the gameplay experience is not where we want it to be, and even with Everfest, and we have come into that value. I think next time we get to a peak in power level, it won't be quite at the same level. That is, I feel fairly confident that's going to be the case. But, you know, like power creep to a degree has to come in somewhere and it doesn't come from the basic design of cards because those like cards are pretty tied to, I guess, the values of, of how this game is designed yeah. with design principles. So heroes is often where that comes from. And I think that's okay. Yeah. I think it's okay. I think um, we kind of talked about in the pod with Nick Butcher, by the way, last week that you know, it does feel like some of the power creep is coming from blues, right? <laughs> blues that function sure, as, that as premier resource cards, but also are um, very, very serviceable threats in the late game. Uh, makes like heroes that have access to those kind of resource cards feel like they're a cut above some of the other heroes right now. We've gone through different iterations throughout the history of Fab, where, you know, at one point we were talking about some heroes have fridges and others don't. And that feels like a huge disparity, right? Like it feels like it's almost a, it's almost a non-starter to have a hero without a fridge now we're looking at things like old him that had these these very very solid blues so i don't know it's just an interesting conversation as fab continues to evolve 
There's more than that, though. I mean, weapons. Weapons has yes, been a conversation. Weapons. Rosetta Thorn, for instance, you know, Winter's Whale. Like, those are also the sort of things that people spoke about in that same sort of vein. And repeatable threats. That was something we talked, you know, drone brutality back in, in the day was the same sort of conversation. Um, so, I think the conversation always changes. Right now, it's about the kind of power level of resource cards, I think, in particular. Mm. But that could very quickly shift to the power level of the heroes in general. It could change to weapons. It could change to equipment. Um yeah, it's. I think Crucible of War in particular was equipment, right? Yeah. So sets will change this dynamic of the conversation, and heroes is just one part of that puzzle. All right, last one. This is from Fab Unofficial. They say it wasn't really touched on too much, but what is uh, both of your personal favorite end games of decks you played with in the past? This is off the back of the podcast we did on navigating end games. Mm, that's a great question i mean i think you should take this one first because i feel like you've got a, a, a home run lined up for yourself <laughs> no i just think the funnest i for me the one that's been the most enjoyable um has had the most input to output in terms of like you put in the work you reap the reward i mean it really it really just was chain and nobody's gonna i don't think any hero in the future will ever ever be able to take that away from me or even us to an extent because there was a very decent amount of time where i felt like we were significantly ahead of the curve and actually the the general populace disagreed with us right like when things like snag came up flock of the feather walkers came up like we continued to stick with our with our version of that deck build and we saw consistent success over and over and over again and that end game was so <laughs> mentally taxing and some of the some of the theory and the math we had done beforehand on deck sizes and getting to the right pitch stack it was just it was a very cathartic, rewarding experience in the end when we got to pull that off. Also, we got to, you know, break the rules of fab. And <laughs> you see Dante Delfico on camera count his deck 50 times and you're like, this should not be legal. <laughs> and it's the funniest thing. It's the biggest meme from if anybody's played Chain. Um, and you guys will see this. This will happen in Monarch Limited, which is, it's funny. Because mm -hmm. if you pilot Chain, you will run into the scenario. You will, you will sequence count your deck, which is... You don't count the actual number. You just count one, two, three, four. Your cards you draw, then the number shackle, cards again. And when you do that, your opponent will ask you how many cards, and you'll respond with, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no clue. You count. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Um, do you know what? I, I'm going to agree on Chain. This might be a recency bias, mm -hmm. but the in game for Ultim in yeah. this previous format was very interesting. And Quite enjoyable to navigate, particularly mirror matches. Mm -hmm. It was very complex. It was about specific cards in deck. It was about uh, pitch order and about what hands were going to come up and how you navigated taking the kind of Terra Sunder tempo in the end game, depending on where you were in the game and depending on what's been defended with. Uh, this is also like you saw this, like we saw things like Dramai and stuff as well. Like mm -hmm. Ultimate has really interesting end games. I think that particularly came up in this most recent format more so than some other formats. Um, that, yeah, but I, I do agree on Chain and the the other one that I'll just give a, a, a quick shout out for sort of favorite in-games was um, was the Viserai sort of in-game yep. in the Scalata build, but when you didn't play the combo, when you played more of a, a, like, a like a mini setup kind of mm. game, which was quite interesting. My favorite end game was actually it's the Blitz Viserai. It starts as soon as the as soon as the game starts. We're in the end Turn game zero. combo. Um, yeah, I. There's been, that's honestly, I, I know you've sort of recaptured the experience with Olden, but I hope that future hero design will allow us to sort of revisit those sort of really grandiose end game strategies where they do mm -hmm. start from the from the beginning of the game. And uh, there's something about Chain with the banishing and what felt like drawing your entire deck on the final turn. It was, uh, 
it's an experience I we haven't been able to replicate quite yet for me. Anyway, Hayden, do you want to, any questions you want to end with here, maybe coming from you personally before we close out uh, for the week? Uh, I mean, not particularly. I think there's been a great range of questions that have come through. I thought there was one question that you were going to ask uh, that came from a, a certain someone that you, that you didn't end up asking. But um, I mean, just want to say thank you to everyone for the, for the questions. Mm-hmm. A little bit short notice on the, I guess, Q&A. So please, if you do have questions, like do get them in. We will we will pop them on the pod in, in the command and cookout section. That's for sure. Yeah, awesome. Well, if you're listening to this on pod platforms, there is a video version on YouTube at, on YouTube at youtube.com slash Arsenal Pass. <coughs> Hayden and I are both on Twitter. I'm Brendan APG. Hayden is at Fien underscore Dale. Um, if you want to help out the podcast, if you listen to us for, God, who knows, two years by now, leave us a review. Um, that's by far the most helpful thing you can do. Apple Podcasts is preferred. But if not, you can get to rate this podcast.com slash Arsenal Pass. I'll give you all the links you need to sort of figure that out. Outside of that, check out the Patreon if you want to see up-to-date deck techs and deck guides. We'll have stuff in the lead-up to World Champions when world championships whatever the heck that is and i'll keep saying that until they announce um and of course support helps us out immensely thank you all so much for listening we'll see you next week see you later